Well, good morning, church family. I haven't done one of these stool sermons in a while. I thought maybe today would be the day. This is such an exciting time in the life of First Christian Church, isn't it? Such an exciting time. There's so much uh, going on. October 6th is going to be here before we know it. Uh, That's the official launch date uh, of Impact Christian Church, a relaunch of FCC in a brand new central location that actually has houses around it that are inhabited. And uh, our our fresh excitement and vision to reach our community around us better than ever. As those of you who are front door greeters know, uh, those that come through our front door here for the first time are kind of few and far between because we are off the beaten path here. Uh, We've discovered over the years uh, that not only are we on the far side of Victorville where most Victorvillians and most Hesperians and Apple Valleyans never travel to, uh, but we have a couple other whammies that make it especially difficult. We're just a half mile up from a federal penitentiary with literally 70 miles of razor wire wrapped around the perimeter of that penitentiary. And then, unfortunately, we're a half mile into what I like to call the ghost town, uh, these uninhabited barracks around us that have been vandalized and left to rot over the past 25 years. What a blessing it's going to be to go to this brand-new campus. And I want to tell you a little bit Uh, about what's uh, been taking place in recent weeks. Uh, We want to, over these next three months, give you regular updates. We want you to be up to date on the latest and greatest going on. We want you to know about the excitement that the staff and elders and others of us are experiencing as we're busily making preparations for this launch on October 6th. At times, we'll come to you and let you know some of the challenges we're facing. And at times, uh, we'll let you know some things that we really need to pray about. So maybe some hiccups along the way that we didn't anticipate. And so we want our whole congregation uh, to be on the same page. We want you all to be up to speed because uh, this is something we're doing together. Amen? So this last week, some exciting things happened. Uh, first of all, one of our missions representatives, Reba Harrison, is reaching out to one of the nine missions that we support, American Rehabilitation Ministries, because they make an amazing portable baptistry. Uh, some of you have asked the question about how we do baptisms in the new location, and so we're in communication with ARM to make sure we get a hold of a portable baptistry so we can do baptisms in that location. I also reached out this last week to Stadia, another one of those nine missions we support. It's a mission organization that specializes in planting new churches. So they're an expert in the type of thing we'll be doing in three months. And so we want to pick their brain. Uh, We don't want to reinvent the wheel. We don't want to make all the same mistakes other church planters or relaunchers have made. Uh, We want to learn from some of those that have an expertise in this area. So we're reaching out to them this last week. And then also on Thursday, I mentioned this to you last week, on Thursday, two of our elders and our staff we're able to have a guided tour of the new facility. So I want to put this picture up for you. And so this is a shot taken on Thursday as our tour began. On the left side of your screen, you'll see a gentleman in a blue button-up shirt you don't recognize. His name is Dale Etter. Uh, Over the next few months, you'll probably hear me mention Dale on occasion. Uh, Dale is with the Victor Elementary School District, and he is the head of operations for the entire school district. And so he's been our main liaison that I've been dealing with Uh, to get this uh, lease of the school to be possible. Uh, He's a man that is a strong Christian, strong believer and follower of Christ. In fact, he gave his life to the Lord almost 30 years ago when he started working for this school district. And so he is excited to have us come to this new campus. And uh, the superintendent, as I've mentioned to you, is excited to have us there as well. So Dale on the left, he led our tour. And uh, let's give you a shot of the backside of the building. This was the first time I was able to go behind the school. Uh, See how beautiful this campus is? That's just a view from the back parking lot. Uh, The back part of that campus, they've put in the palm trees in the last few weeks. That's kind of a nice added touch they have there. They've actually invested $35.5 million on this school facility. It's a $35 million facility. And as we were touring around and inside it, uh, it really, really shows. It is a beautiful state-of-the-art building. Something else we hadn't gotten to see before, I'll show you this next slide here. Uh, This is one of the two playgrounds that our kids will get to play on. 
one of the two playgrounds they have there that we'll be able to use. It's got uh, kind of the state-of-the-art foam padding underneath all the equipment. I think it's at least four inches thick. So the kids fall off the slide. It's like hitting a pillow. And uh, it's fully covered, has that solid cover over it, as you can see. And so that'll be awesome. And this is right behind, you can kind of see it to the left side, right behind the amphitheater uh, that we'll be able to have use of for our children's ministry at times as well. And then just past that amphitheater is the entrance uh, to where the multi-purpose room is, where all of us will get to meet uh, for the Sunday morning services. Moving to the inside of the building, uh, this isn't the most important feature, but it's one some of you may have thought about. Hey, how are the restrooms? This is not a preschool, so we do not have the squatty potties in this facility. Uh, it's a beautiful restroom facility. Uh, that's, I believe, the ladies' restroom that we have a shot of there uh, right off the hallway uh, outside of where the main auditorium is going to be. So lovely facilities in that, uh, in that building. And then this next shot I want to show you here is at the end of our tour, our group was inside that uh, main auditorium, that multi-purpose room, and that's a shot from the back of the room looking toward the stage. And so they're making some great progress. You might be able to see in the photo uh, the speakers are now mounted. That's going to be a blessing that we don't have to bring in our own speakers each week. Uh, Lights are mounted just in front of the stage, uh, so we will probably just have to add minimal lighting uh, for the stage on a Sunday morning. All of these little features that they've put into this, you can't see it, but on the floor uh, they have uh, various power access uh, through, uh, so I think, some VGA cable, some uh, running things, so we can go wireless to a large extent in this room. And one thing I'm thrilled about, if you've ever watched one of our Facebook live broadcasts of our Sunday morning service, one of the challenges we have in this building is because it's concrete and because our Internet provider doesn't give us very high-speed Internet, we have our live feed kind of cut in and out at different times on a Sunday morning. Our upload bandwidth in this building is about 5 megabytes, if I understand right. In this building, it's going to be 100. And so this will allow us to have consistent signals being sent out as we do a live broadcast and will allow us to get a little bit higher-end camera as opposed to having to use a cell phone to record the service. And so we're pretty excited about this being a state-of-the-art facility that allow us to do some things that we couldn't do in this facility here. So God is good, isn't he? And all the time. God is good. I uh, plan on three weeks, that'll be July 21st, I plan on in three weeks having a ministry fair uh, here at FCC. We'll have it after the service, and we'll have some tables set up where you'll get to know about all of the different volunteer opportunities, because so many of you have said, how can I help? I want to volunteer and be a part of this. And I want you to know there are dozens of ministry opportunities to be a part of this launch before, during, and after the launch. And most of these volunteer opportunities have nothing to do with unloading a cargo trailer every week. Woohoo! That will be an important job. Most of these are other areas. Some of you are seniors and say, you know, I'm not physically able to do a lot. There'll be opportunities for seniors. One of the most important things is to be bathing this whole effort in prayer. And that's something any of us can do. Even our shut-ins watching the video today from home can even do this. We want to bathe this whole process and this launch in prayer. We'll need more greeters. We'll need more help in the parking lot. We'll need more nursery volunteers. There are really opportunities for everyone in this church. To whatever extent you want to be involved and volunteer, we've got opportunities and would love to have you on board. And so please be keeping this in prayer. And in three weeks, we'll give you the specifics at our ministry fair, letting you know of those specific opportunities on the horizon. I'm pretty excited about what God is doing. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for being the awesome God that you are. Lord, as we uh, turn our sights toward your word today, I pray, O oh God, that uh, you would help us as we dive into your word. I pray that every child, every teenager, every adult in this room today, Lord, would learn from your word today, would be drawn closer to Jesus Christ, would be inspired to serve you better, and, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We do truly love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us first. Lord, bless us in these upcoming three months as we move forward as Impact Christian Church to make a powerful impact on this community. And, Lord, for our own lives to be impacted 
by the Holy Spirit working in and through us in new and fresh ways as a church family. Lord Jesus, move in our church and move through this time when we dig into your word right now. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn to a child somewhere around you and say, hey, it's good to have you in the service with us today. Go ahead. If you don't have a child real close to you, turn to the guy with gray hair and say, hey, it's good to have you in the service today. Amen. So we need a few things in hand. We need a Bible. Everybody grab a Bible. I love when we have our family services. If you're sitting next to your kids, uh, go ahead and huddle close. And it's okay to share a copy of God's Word so that you can be a little bit closer together as a family physically while you're in the service. Uh, but we want to open up to Luke chapter 11. Uh, kids, if you're with us this morning and you're normally in the back at children's area, uh, we've been making our way through the book of Luke. And so we're continuing today in Luke chapter 11. Uh, As always, we have the message notes in the bulletin. I believe all the kids got some message notes too. If you are sixth grade or under but did not get one of the message notes handouts, raise your hand. Okay? I think we've got some extras in back. Anyone? Any kids? Okay? Because kids, there's a prize if you fill out all those blanks on your message notes handout today. We've got one up front. So Ben is going to grab some extra ones. Uh, Little guy in the front row, what's your name? Carter? Carter, it's so good to have you in church today, bud. So glad you came. Uh, if you just hold your hand up, Miss Christy, she's our children's director. She's going to get you a handout. Anyone else that needs one? Okay. Well, hand out in hand with a pen or pencil and Luke chapter 11. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. May God bless us as we study his word today. Back in the mid-1980s, there was a very popular book that was published by Christian author Frank Peretti. It was called This present darkness. It's a novel. For you kids, a novel simply means it was created in the imagination of the author's mind. It's not a true story. It's a novel. And in that novel, Frank Peretti tells the story of a small fictional town called Ashton. And this small fictional town uh, in some place in the United States has a, a little paper that's owned by a man by the name of Marshall Hogan. And there's a small community church that's pastored by a a reluctant and somewhat despised pastor named Hank Bush. And as this story unfolds in this little town of Ashton, the editor of the paper and the local pastor begin to realize that something strange is happening in this town. And in the course of the book, they both come to the conclusion that this town has become ground zero for a demonic attack. There are literally thousands of demons hovering over the town and hiding and lurking in shadows at different places around town. And they come to the conclusion that these demons are attacking non-Christians, particularly those that had been wrapped up in a local New Age movement, and they are like marionettes moving people to their beck and call, however Satan wants them to move. These demons are invisibly hanging overhead, pulling the strings of the townspeople to carry out Satan's bidding. And I read this book as a teenager, and one of the images 
that almost gave me nightmares was the image of this certain demon with a long bony finger sticking his invisible finger through the skull of a non-Christian and stirring his thoughts in the direction that the enemy wanted them to go. And I tell you, that almost gave me nightmares. This was a fictional book. It was devised in Frank Peretti's mind, but I tell you, this caused millions of Christians to start thinking about spiritual warfare and start thinking about this invisible realm that we can't see with our eyes, but the Bible tells us is very much real. In Ephesians 6, chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of struggles. Same kind of sufferings. Now Jesus understood spiritual warfare really well, didn't he? Spiritual warfare was not something that was new to Jesus. In fact, right after Jesus was baptized, remember what happened. He was baptized, and as he was coming up out of the Jordan River, right after being baptized, he begins praying. And as he is praying, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And as soon as the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. After the voice from Father God comes from heaven, it says Jesus immediately went into the desert. He immediately went into the wilderness, and what happened for 40 days and 40 nights? He was tempted. Interestingly, the Bible makes it very clear that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And because he fasted, we can clearly assume that he was praying during the 40 days and 40 nights. But the main thing it says he was doing besides fasting was he was being tempted. And so when we have those three temptations, Jesus, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Uh, Jesus, why don't you throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and let the angels catch you? Jesus, why don't you bow down and worship Satan? Those three temptations that are called out, that was at the end of the 40 days. It's safe to assume that Jesus was being tempted a lot more than those three times. And so Jesus, from the very beginning, even before he had preached his very first sermon, even before he had performed his very first miracle, Jesus was doing spiritual warfare with Satan, wasn't he? He was there in that desert, battling temptations, going mano a mano with the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And who came out victorious? And that was setting the course for what would happen during Jesus' ministry. After that 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus begins his teaching ministry, begins his miracle ministry. And over the next three years, time and time and time again, Jesus would encounter demons inside of men. And when Jesus confronted a demon in a man, he drove him out. When Jesus confronted a demon in a woman, he drove it out. And when Jesus confronted a demon in a child, guess what Jesus did? He drove it out. Time and time again, whenever Jesus confronted a demon, he overpowered it, he drove it out. It was no contest that demon could not stand up to the power of the Almighty Son of God. Jesus understood spiritual warfare really, really well. And this incident here in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14, it's par for the course when Jesus confronted a demon. It's kind of interesting, Luke picks up in the middle of the action in verse 14. He doesn't really do a segue into this. He just jumps right into the action. Verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. Kids, do you know what the word mute means? Mute means you cannot, cannot, good, cannot talk, you cannot speak. This demon was inside this man, and for whatever reason, this specific demon, when it was inside of a man, kept him from being able to speak. 
Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 that Satan is a thief who comes to steal and comes to kill and comes to destroy. And this demon inside this man in Luke chapter 11 is following the bidding of his master, Satan. He's following his bidding because he comes and he steals this man's ability to speak. He kills his ability to have normal relationships with people in his family and in his circle of friends. And this demon comes in and destroys his hope for ever having his situation changed. The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, and there's nothing that could be done about it until Jesus came onto the scene. Amen? Jesus comes onto the scene, and Jesus confronts the demon, and he drives it out. And when that demon is driven out, Jesus restores what had been stolen. He gave life where there had been killing and stripping and destroying of that man. Jesus gave him a brand new life. That man had a new lease on life because he confronted Jesus Christ. And Jesus confronted that demon. Jesus is just amazing, isn't he? I love him so much. Don't you? Jesus is so amazing. I love how he confronts the powers of darkness and drives them out. And understandably, we read that the crowd was amazed when Jesus drove the demon out of this man. They were amazed when this man was able to speak, likely for the first time in years, he's able to speak. Can you imagine how shocked you'd be if you went over to the nursery after church today, and there's a little six-month-old, and you walked up to the six-month-old, and you kind of leaned over and said, oh, you're so cute, and you're doing your little baby talk, and you're leaning over, and the little baby says, excuse me, I need my space. And while we're in the conversation, let me just let you know something. Maybe your family is too bashful to tell you, but your breath, woo it's a little rank. Could you maybe step back just a few feet? Your jaw drop. You'd be a man. This baby's talking. Imagine a man who hadn't been able to speak for probably years. All of a sudden, he's speaking for the first time. The crowd is blown away. The crowd is amazed. But there were some critics in the crowd, weren't there? There were some skeptics and there were some critics. Matthew gives us this account as well. Matthew tells us these were Pharisees in the crowd, the Jewish legalists who were criticizing Jesus. And these critics, they speak up in verse 15 and say, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now, what on earth is a Beelzebub? Well, Beelzebub is a contraction. That means a shoving together of two different words. Baal and Zebub. Most of us have heard of Baal, the great god of the Canaanites. In the Old Testament times, in the days of King Saul, in the days of King David, even in the days of King Solomon and following, they confronted this god of the pagans called Baal. Baal simply means Lord. And throughout all of these pagan nations that surrounded Israel in Old Testament times, they would worship Baal, but they would worship local manifestations of Baal. So there was Baal Peor, which means the Lord of Peor, a Baal when he took up residency in their little town of Peor. And here we have reference to Baal Zebub, the Lord who took up residency in Zebub, wherever that was. And so Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. Isn't that a great name for your God? If you reject Jesus Christ as your God, I really feel for you. Because everything else out there is a pale imitation. It pretty much is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords compared to the Lord of the Flies. There is no contest. And so here they're saying, by the Lord of the flies, you're driving out demons. Now, a little bit more about Baal-zebub. There's a different form of that word, Baal-zebul. They take that final B and replace it with an L. Baal-zebul means Lord of the dwelling, but it's close enough to a Hebrew word where the Hebrews had begun to say Baal-zebul doesn't mean Lord of the dwelling. It means Lord of the dung. And so over the centuries, when they referred to Beelzebub or Beelzebul, the Jews would kind of snicker and say, yeah, he's the Lord of the dung. And so here these Jewish critics of Jesus 
are basically saying this. They're basically saying to themselves, we can't dispute the reality of the miracle. They couldn't discredit what Jesus had done because the man had clearly been demon-possessed and clearly now he wasn't. He clearly had not been able to speak, and now he could speak. So they couldn't dispute the fact that that man had been healed by the power of Jesus Christ. And so instead of disputing that, which they could not do, they try to claim that Jesus was able to do it because the Lord of the dung was the one that empowered him to do it. That was the Jews, one of their favorite titles for Satan. In other words, it's by the power of Satan that you are able to drive out Satan's henchmen. So, you look at that, saying the Son of God is empowered by Satan. Folks, that's a little something we call blasphemy. And when it comes to sin, it doesn't get much worse than that. They're equating Jesus' character with the character of Satan. They're equating Jesus' power with Satan's power. They're equating Jesus' motives with Satan's motives. That's blasphemy. Interestingly, though, Jesus doesn't accuse his critics of blasphemy. Instead, he gives them a very reasoned, a very logical response to prove that their accusation is full of bunk. And he does this in the next few verses. He makes three powerful points in verses 17 through 20. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. Look at those verses again, 17 and 18. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by the Lord of the dung or the Lord of the flies. So his first powerful point he makes in verses 17 and 18 is this. Any kingdom divided against itself will crumble. Those of you who are taking notes, you need to fill in that blank there. Any kingdom divided against itself will crumble. Since when does civil war make a house or a nation more unified and stronger? It doesn't, does it? Civil war, by definition, tears a household or tears a nation apart. It doesn't bring peace. It brings animosity and division. The American Civil War is an example of this. This last week I did a little bit of research, and I was curious about the death toll of the various wars that we've fought in over the past almost 250 years. The third most deadly war in the history of America has been World War I. Did you know that over 100,000 Americans died in World War I? That's staggering by modern warfare numbers. Over 100,000 Americans died in World War I. World War II is the second most deadly war in the history of our nation. World War II claimed four times as many lives as World War I. This is just crazy to try to wrap our minds around. Over 400,000 Americans died in World War II. That's roughly four times the population of the entire city of Victorville. Wiped out in World War II. But did you know that the Civil War, with an estimated 750,000 Americans died, claimed more American lives than every other war combined in the last 250 years? Isn't that remarkable? The Civil War claimed more lives than all other wars Americans have fought in combined. Civil War is a horrible deadly thing. And that's just one example of the many civil wars that have taken place in history. So Jesus asks his critics the question in verse 18, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? In other words, it would be insane for Beelzebub to try to advance his kingdom by driving out his own faithful henchmen, his own faithful soldiers. It just wouldn't happen. And so Jesus' first point is, no, any kingdom divided against itself will crumble. It will fall. His second point he makes in verse 19, if I'm driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then by whose power do your followers drive them out? I love how Jesus shoves it to his critics at times. I love how Jesus does this. Okay, 
Remember, fellas, remember, Pharisees, I'm not the only one who has a track record of driving out some demons. I may have driven out more than your guys' followers did, but they've driven out some in the past few years, too. So if you're saying, I am driving out demons by the power of the dung lord, then how are your followers driving them out? So in other words, if I am driving out demons by the power of the dung lord, you guys better look in the mirror, and I think what you'll see when you look in the mirror is a little bit of dung hanging off of your faces as well. If I'm driving them out by the dung lord, so are you. Obviously, they would say, no, 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 we're not doing it by the power of Satan. So the point is clear, Jesus says, then neither am I. And then he doesn't stop there. That probably would have been enough to shut him up. But Jesus goes on in verse 20 to point out that his power is from God. Here's the point he makes in verse 20. Obviously, I am driving out demons by the finger of God. Therefore, the truth is plain to see. My kingdom is God's kingdom. They are one and the same. Amen? My kingdom is God's kingdom. They're one and the same. That's why Jesus was able to drive out demons every single time he confronted them. Because he's the son of God. His kingdom is always superior to Satan's kingdom. No other human being without the power of God would be able to do what Jesus did. But he was able to drive them out every single time because he was God. Jesus, in verses 21 and 22, shares this short little kind of mini parable about a strong man. And that strong man in this, these verses, 21 and 22, represents Satan. Satan is well armed. He's well defended. In the past, when people tried to drive Satan out of his territory, Satan was able to kick him out because he's the strong man, right? And he was getting kind of puffed up and prideful. Hey, look at me. You want to come pick a fight with me? No problem. Come and let's see. Give me your best shot. Come after me. Come after me. And every single time someone would try to come after Satan himself, they'd get their booty kicked. Then Jesus comes onto the scene, and every single time Satan tries to confront him, Satan, the strong man, is overpowered by an even stronger man, right? So Jesus, in verses 21 and 22, is making it clear, yes, Satan is a strong man. He's not a guy you want to mess with, but I am the stronger man who can drive him out like that. Verse 23, Jesus makes this teaching very personal for every single person who hears it. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is probably the most pivotal verse in this entire passage. I dare say probably the most important verse in this entire passage. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, it is impossible to be on the fence in this spiritual war. It is impossible to be on the fence in this spiritual war. And Jesus illustrates this point so well in verses 24 through 28. That's where we left off a few minutes ago. Let's pick up in verse 24. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through in arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. That was kind of out of left field. Jesus replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Well, this little parable that Jesus tells here, it seems a little bit obscure, doesn't it? Seems a little odd. You know, why is Jesus talking about this evil spirit going on vacation after it possessed a guy and then evidently gets bored out in the desert? I can't imagine that happening. It gets bored out in the desert, and so the demon returns and brings seven buddies with him back into the guy that he had. What, what on earth? This is just such an obscure little parable. Well, Jesus is illustrating the fact that no one can be neutral in this spiritual battle. No one can be neutral in this spiritual war between the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Beelzebub. It can't happen. Our nation is filled with people who think that they can reject Jesus Christ 
and at the same time reject Satan. And I'm sorry, that's just not possible. It can't happen. You have to choose one or the other. You have to pick up sides. Jesus tells us in verse 24 of a a demon who, for whatever reason, chooses to vacate a man's soul. Possibly, this was a demon who had been driven out by one of the Pharisees' followers. So the Pharisees see this man that has a demon. They drive out the demon, and the demon goes ahead and leaves the man and says, well, I guess I'll hang out in the desert for a while. But he doesn't like the desert, and so after a while he returns and inhabits that man once again. Maybe Jesus is still talking about the fact that the Pharisees' followers at times did some exorcisms themselves. Maybe it's even someone that Jesus had driven out. You know something interesting about Jesus' miracles? They were always, in a sense, temporary. You look at when Jesus healed someone of leprosy. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically that it was impossible for that person to ever contract leprosy down the road once Jesus had healed them. The Bible is not real clear on that. We can be certain that whenever Jesus rose someone from the dead, whether it was the widow's son or whether it was Lazarus, those two eventually died again, didn't they? So even when Jesus rose someone from the dead, it was a temporary healing. Because we live in this fallen world, eventually Lazarus died a physical death, didn't he? Nothing in Scripture says that the son of the widow and Lazarus were taken directly up into heaven like Elijah on a fiery chariot. And so, potentially, when a demon had been driven out, that demon later down the road could come back in. So, if that's the case, what is Jesus getting at here? I think Jesus is making some powerful points, and I suppose it's said best by William Barclay. He points out three things that we can learn from this parable. Number one, you can't leave a man's soul empty. You can't leave a man's soul empty. So imagine this demon is inside this man, whether it's because of his own free will or because someone drove him out of the man. The demon leaves, and now this man's soul is empty because it's no longer filled with a demon. Okay, I meant to have a little illustration up here. I forgot to put it up here before the service. But I want you to imagine I've got two glasses and a pitcher full of water. You with me? I take the pitcher of water. I'm going to pour it into the glass on the left all the way up to the brim. Now I'm holding two glasses. It's my left. I'll say you're right. So this one I just filled full of water, and this one I didn't. Which one is full? The one on my left, the one on your right. Do you all agree? The answer is both. This one's full of water. This one's full of air. So you know this because of atmospheric pressure. If you have a styrofoam cup, and I know kids, you've probably tried this. I'm 45, and I still do it. I put a styrofoam cup up to my mouth after I finish my drink, and I start sucking out the air. What happens to that cup? It goes, and pretty soon you have a cup that looks like this. Why? Because when you suck out the air, now the atmospheric pressure around the cup is pressing in, and you no longer have that same atmospheric pressure of air pressing from the inside out. That's why stuff doesn't collapse on our planet, because air is pressing in at the same uh, force that the air is pressing out. So all you've done when you've poured water into this cup on your right is replace the air with water, right? So you think about this cup on the left, it looks empty to the naked eye, but it's very much full. It's full of air. And so much the same thing happens in the spiritual realm. Imagine this man, he has the demon driven out of him, and he is now empty. The soul cannot remain empty. Some people think that if I expel Satan, that's good enough. It's not good enough. You have to replace it with something, don't you? And so what happens in when this man has the demon driven out of him, he does not make the conscious decision to invite Jesus Christ into his life. And without Jesus Christ in his life, his soul remains empty, his heart remains empty, and is easy for demons to fill once again. Does that make sense? That demon comes back and looks at this man that he once possessed, and hey, he's cleaned up his act. For us, maybe that means the guy came off of drugs once the demon was driven out. 
he's now, he's now clean and sober. Uh, maybe that means that he kind of cleaned up his act. He doesn't smoke or chew or go with girls that do. You know, he cleaned up his act a little bit. We can be moral to some extent on our own, can't we? But the demon just says, hey, he's cleaned up pretty well. Now I just have a cleaner house to move into. And because he didn't consciously fill that vessel with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he doesn't remain empty very long, does he? You can't leave a man's soul empty. If God is not in the driver's seat of your life, one way or another, Satan will be in the driver's seat of your life. You can't leave a man's soul empty. Second lesson William Barclay points out from this parable, it's not real religion if it's nothing but negatives. It's not real religion if it's nothing but negatives. I didn't know exactly when I first read this what he was getting at, but as I read his explanation, it makes perfect sense. You see, the man in Jesus' illustration thought that getting rid of the demon was all it took to be in a good place. The evil was gone, so life must be good, right? Right? Woohoo! <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way, does it? Do you know good is not simply the absence of evil? It doesn't work that way. Good is not simply the absence of evil. In the same way, true religion can't be boiled down to a list of thou shalt nots. In James 1.27, God's word says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Notice James doesn't say, this is pure religion. This is how to really follow God. Simply, don't be polluted by the world. And that's it. He doesn't say that. He says, yes, you need to make sure you're not polluted by the world. Yes, you need to make sure you carry out those Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. But also make sure that you look after orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, Christianity can never be boiled down to a list of do-nots. Christianity has some do-nots. But it also has a whole lot of do's. And if the good is not consciously carried out at the same time that the evil is expelled, that is not true religion. That is not true Christianity. And that's so important for any church to understand. Any church that follows Jesus Christ must keep this in mind. We have to be very careful to not give our families and our neighbors and our world the impression that Christianity is nothing but a list of don'ts. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Or go with... There you go. Some of you have heard this list of what it means to be a Christian. And many of our family and friends, it might shock us to understand shock us to hear if we were to ask them point blank, can you boil down Christianity into a few sentences? We'd probably be shocked to find out how many would boil down Christianity into a list of do nots, a list of thou shalt nots. We've got to be careful not to give the impression that Christianity is just about what not to do. Far too many non-Christians in our community have been given the impression that Christianity is just an oppressive list of thou shalt nots. And that's so far from the truth. Christianity is so much more. It's not just about expelling the evil. It's about filling our lives with our good Savior, isn't it? It's about filling our lives with His goodness, filling our lives with His righteousness, filling our lives with His grace and His mercy and His compassion and His kindness and putting others' needs above our own needs. Now, before I share with you lesson number three, let me ask you, what is the best way to avoid evil? Just kind of throw it out there. What's the best way to avoid evil? What do you think, buddy? Prayer? Okay. I think your son had one too. What do you think? Being a good Christian. Oh, that's a good answer. I think that one needs a hand. Good job, buddy. Everybody look his direction. Give him an air high five. There we go. Good job, buddy. Others, what's the best way to avoid evil? Do good? That's great. Very close to how Barclay answers this question. Well, yeah, what do you think? His example? Follow his name. That's great. You know, I probably wouldn't have answered the question this way, but I love the way William Barclay answers this question. What is the best way to avoid evil? It's lesson number three. 
the best way to avoid evil is to do good. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's pretty straightforward. I got to about, yeah, that's too simple. And I got to thinking and chewing on it. Huh, I kind of like that. It is simple, but it's so, so true. It's a pretty good answer to the question. It's hard to do evil when you're so busy doing good, right? It's hard to do evil when you're so busy doing good. I don't know about you, but I find that I'm not nearly as mean to people when I'm busy being nice to people. Have you discovered that? I I found that I'm not nearly as hateful when I'm busy being loving. I found that I don't kind of lapse into my mind wandering into areas it shouldn't wander, whether that's into an area of selfishness or an area of lust or an area of, uh, of pride, whatever it might be. My mind doesn't wander as much when I have my mind filled with thoughts of Jesus Christ. And that's just kind of the way God created us. My thoughts don't wander. Some of you may struggle with depression. And my heart goes out to you. Those of you that struggle with that. I've had periods in my life when I've been down in the dumps. But some of you deal with that on a consistent basis. I encourage you to do your very best to fill your thoughts and fill your time with God's thoughts and God's work. Because when we keep ourselves busy focused on God and doing His work, it's amazing how that distracts us from the stuff that pulls us away from Him. Is it foolproof? No, it's not foolproof. It's not super simple. It's not easy. But it works pretty dang well. Make sure that you don't have too much time on your hands. Idle hands, they say, are the devil's workshop or the devil's playground. When we have too much time on our hands, our mind wanders into Satan's terrain too much. Our actions wander where they shouldn't wander. So make sure you don't have too much idle time on your hands. According to Luke, 27, Luke 11, 27, after Jesus told this little parable, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And Jesus must have been thinking, I wonder if this lady was listening to a word that I said. He doesn't criticize her. He simply says, blessed rather are those who what? Hmm. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Friends, you and I must choose a side. Either Jesus Christ's side or Satan's side. And the word of the Lord is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In other words, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and He will come inside you and He will fill your heart and He will fill your soul. And when He does, you will be full of God. And when you are full of God, there is no room inside you for the dung God anymore. Amen? When you are full of God, there is no room for anything else. That air is sitting there laughing at us. Neener, neener, neener. I'm in this glass and you didn't even know it. But as soon as that water is poured in, uh, bye-bye air. It has no choice but to vacate when water comes in because water always trumps air, doesn't it? And in the same way, the Spirit of Jesus Christ always trumps Satan and Beelzebub. And so when God comes in and fills you, there's no room for anything else. And so if you want to be full of God, you invite Him into your life and say, God, I don't want you just in my heart a little bit. I want you to fill my heart. And if you find any nooks and crannies in there, some little crevices that maybe I haven't invited you into in the past, could you fill those nooks and crannies and those crevices as well? Because I want you to fill everything, Lord Jesus. And as we choose to follow Jesus, as we are filled with Jesus, we obey His Word. And as Jesus says at the end of this passage, as we obey Him, because we are filled with Him, we will be blessed. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name. And we thank You for this powerful Word from Your Word. Lord, I just pray that You would fill us. Oh God, we want our kids to be full of You. We want our teenagers to be full of You. Lord, we want our adults in this room to be full of You. God, I pray that I would be so full of You, it's it's almost visible. You're just kind of seeping out of my uh, out of my ears and my mouth and my eyes as I'm up here speaking. Lord, I just pray that the presence of God in my life would be palpable, whether I'm here on a Sunday morning in a, a church building, or Lord, whether I'm out there at Walmart when I can't find it at Target. 
Lord, I I just pray that when we walk into a room, the spiritual climate would change because we are full of God. And God has stepped into the room because Christ in me has stepped into the room. Lord Jesus, would you fill us? Would you push out anything that's not of you? If there's anyone here that has this notion that they can have you in the driver's seat and have Beelzebub riding shotgun, Lord, I pray that you would wake us up this morning and we would open that passenger's door and kick him out by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would fill us. Fill our thoughts, fill our motives, fill our actions, fill our behavior. Fill us, O God. And fill our church, oh God. We're going into this new adventure in three months, God. And it's a bit overwhelming. Lord, we're going to make purchases so we can do portable church in that location. And we're going to prepare ourselves. We're going to try to do our our worship, Lord, better than ever. I'm going to try to preach these messages better than ever. Lord, we're going to increase our, our workers and do children's ministry better than ever. But, Lord, if we are doing this in our own strength, we will fail. We must have more of you. Would you fill these sermons more than ever before? Would you fill our praise times more than ever before? Would you fill our invitation times? Would you fill our nursery and our children's classrooms more than ever before? Lord, I pray from the moment someone turns into that new parking lot that there would be a a noticeable, palpable change. And they may not be able to put their finger on it, but something is different. And it's something they desire because there's that God-shaped void inside every single one of us that can only be filled by you. Lord Jesus, move in us this week and in the months to come. And I pray if there's anyone in this room today who has never made that decision to accept you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would get out of that chair And that they would come to someone and ask them that question. The most important question they could ever ask this side of heaven. What must I do to be saved? And I pray today that lives would be transformed and saved. By the power of you. Working in them. To give them new life. Lord Jesus move in us we pray. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together.